Hello, and welcome to another conversation when belief dies. This week's a little bit different, so I'm not actually in the conversation. It's going to be Daniel and Roger for the first time coming together to uh, talk about a few things I've been emailing backwards and forwards. Um, I'm actually also not going to listen to this until it goes live for everybody. Um, I'm really excited to hear and to see what is talked about and kind of how things go. Um, this is a really good conversation simply because the next one, episode 100, is going to be a live stream. Um, so if you're watching or listening to this right now when it's gone live, bear in mind the next conversation is going to be going live at 8 p.m. Um, on the following Tuesday. So there'll be a link in the description for you to kind of watch that on YouTube and then the audio will come out in due course. But yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Daniel and Roger and I'm just as excited as you to see what they speak about. All right, cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies. The aim of this podcast and YouTube channel is to have conversations that honestly reflect on faith, religion and life. Once a week, every week, we aim to bring you a conversation that explores belief with a variety of guests from various parts of the world, delving into why some subscribe to a specific religion and or denomination, and why others have either never believed or decided to walk away from a framework of belief. The more we can understand about why someone holds or rejects a specific religious position, the more honest we can be with the positions we hold as we strive to believe as many true things as possible. This is why it's amazing to have you with us each and every week. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Daniel and I'm joined today by Roger. Uh, Roger, how are you doing? Hey, Daniel. Good to be with you. Looking forward to the conversation tonight. Indeed, indeed. This is a, it, it's quite surreal because obviously we, as different guests with Sam at different times, have obviously been watching each other's episodes. But this is actually the first time we we directly have actually had the opportunity to speak. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It it is surreal, isn't it? And I because I, I think I've I think I've listened to pretty much every episode that you've done with Sam. So kind of just sort of keeping up with what you've been saying. And um, quite a few times where I've sort of thought, you know, I'm more with Daniel than I am with Sam on this occasion or vice versa or whatever. And so um, and there's various things that you've said at various points that I've just been really curious about and thought, well, this is a good chance to sort of ask you some of those things, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think likewise, it's it's been kind of funny, especially in some of your conversations with Sam around the idea of truth and and how you approach Christianity in comparison to the way Sam approached it. And in compare probably in comparison to the way I've approached it at times. So obviously when I was a Christian previously. Um yeah, so I'll I'll be really interested to, you know, just to get us kicked off. Um obviously it's it's curious that you, as a Christian, have sort of been having these chats with Sam, uh, not not with this explicit expectation that somehow in these conversations you're going to be able to bring Sam back. Um, so I'm really curious just to understand a bit more from you, like what's really driving you in these conversations? What, why do you enjoy having these chats with with Sam and, and now like even willing to chat with me, you know, someone who's now quite firmly an atheist what 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 do you get out of that 
it's it's a really good question it's a question i've asked myself quite a few times as well like why am i doing this to myself you know but particularly in those comments like there's been some conversations where sam's really challenged me and i've really sort of felt the bite of the conversation and if i'm honest there have even been moments where i've been reading the bible and i've thought oh crap sam said that thing or i read this thing from bart ehrman and now i'm wondering did jesus really say that you know in the last supper or, or am i just being taken in here so so it is a real challenge for me on some level but i really felt i needed to do it so i i think like you i i was the person who contacted sam so i sort of heard him on unbelievable he really sort of made an impact on me for some reason like i mean i've listened to dozens of unbelievable shows and i've never ever felt in you know inclined to contact anybody um but there was something about Sam. I just thought this is a guy I really, really want to talk to um, for some reason. And so I then have to almost think, OK, so there's that sort of impulse. Where did that come from? Um, shall I shall I just rattle off a few of the reasons that I think it might be? And then um, and then we can kind of work out um, if there is. So firstly, just to say, in, it, given that I'm an academic, I work in a university, um, I'm a psychologist. I would say that most of my friends and colleagues in their perspectives on life are probably closer to you and Sam than than they would be to my friends at church. So 90% of my life, if you like, is spent in rooms with people who are very skeptical, if not entirely denying of the existence of God. You know, that's their deal. And and these are not people that I tolerate. These are friends that, you know, when I have a bad day, these are the people who I'm talking to. Um, these are the people I hang out with, that I plan projects with. Um, so, so they're genuine friends. And I think it, quite often some of them would take the view that they say they wish they could believe what I believe, but they just can't bring themselves to it. Some of them are mystified by it. Um, others, I think, are quite antagonistic towards it. And we tend to avoid talking about it because of that. And terms of we don't want to, you know, it's not the kind of thing to bring up down the pub where you might want to talk about something that goes down better. Um, and so we have this sort of hesitant distance sometimes. And it's, these are some of my you know, really good friends that I have that sort of relationship with. Um, so I think what I felt was on offer with Sam is it was a chance to talk to someone who very, very much represents the sort of journey that, from my experience anyway, the majority of our culture are going on. So I, I would take the view that our culture is secularizing, that most people um, probably, I mean, when I survey my students on it about 60 percent of them now would call themselves secular humanists i mean they don't necessarily use that label but that's what they kind of fit into um uh, so some of them when i ask them about the question of god will say i'm an apathetic agnostic which they say is you know don't know don't care <laughs> is the way they put it um but i felt what was on offer with sam was to have a conversation with that cultural trend with somebody who because they've sort of been closer to my position would understand that side of it a little bit as well and in the process of talking I could maybe understand a little bit of where he had come from and where where he was and then obviously I ended up listening to you talking to him as well and um so, so I guess in a sense that that's it it's sort of making contact with I, I think a sort of trend you know this makes it sound much more impersonal than it really is but it's kind of like I view you guys as representing a trend in our culture that's really really important and needs to be understood you know it needs to be engaged with not just made wrong but talked about in terms of what's what's going on and then just something around the the, the thing you said about sort of not trying to convert sam so the way i've put it to sam is i say i sort of sit with a gentle wish that he might you know find jesus again um 
but that our friendship isn't dependent on that you know so um you know wherever this goes whatever perspective we end we both end up with um the connecting point is our shared humanity so the connecting point is we are human beings really trying to work out what is this all about and how do we live best with it and what is the the most useful perspective to take on things so so i think that's sort of that's a bit of a waffly way of answering the question really i i felt that there was ultimately an importance and a significance to this kind of conversation at this time yeah and i think it, it's really interesting because when i look across the the space of sort of other people who are producing podcasts or other videos and things like that there are very few that are actually where it's a dialogue where mm -hmm. there are multiple voices sort of having that um back and forth and sometimes i think especially along the lines of believing in god and not believing in god there's just this imaginary invisible wall and you, you're just on one of these two sides and it's a binary position <laughs> maybe maybe trinary if the agnostics get to just sit on the fence a little bit on the middle but actually when we're dealing with complex questions uh, that have yeah. a huge variety of different positions i i sometimes think i can have more in common with certain people who do believe in god than i do with with many of the atheists on, 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 yeah. on who are supposedly on my side <laughs> um in in that yeah. wider conversation <laughs> and i i think you're right there is there is sort of a a, sh a shift in society and obviously you know it's it's probably just as looking at our modern day expression of it there's probably a shift that's been going on for a good couple of centuries now but uh yeah it's intriguing to see that and to be able to have conversations about it uh, in the midst of it. Can, can I can I tell you the sort of analogy that has come to mind when I've thought about um, me and Sam and what are, like sometimes the way I've expressed it to Sam, I don't know if I've said this on a show, I might have done, but I sort of view as, as like kind of people who, who live in neighbouring gardens chatting over the fence, like that's the kind of way I view it as kind of, you know, he's in that sort of more agnostic, doubtful camp. I'm definitely in the Christian camp, but we have this sort of shared boundary that we talk across and and then i guess right, we're going to put you into that that sort of analogy daniel I, I i and you can disagree with me if this isn't the way you see it i would view you as much more solidly in the atheist so you're in the center of the atheist garden more than more than sam would be and so i see him more of a sort of he's closer to the fence than you are in in my opinion anyway only in the sense that when i hear you articulate your atheism and talk about it you seem to have really really you seem to be really constructing a sort of philosophy around it um in a way that i sometimes feel sam is still more hesitant than you are around that side of things but i i, I might be wrong in kind of would you see it that way would that be your view of it yes to a certain extent uh, i think you know obviously when i you know there's there's a couple of things one there's the um and i guess for me this journey has sort of led me to really wanting to understand philosophy to uh, understand uh just how we've understood the world and even questions about uh metaphysics and things like that I, it, like it has drawn me in at the same time i've now done enough of it to know yeah we we don't really know that much do we <laughs> and so it's kind of a there are things that i want to construct that I think are 
helpful things that help me live my life in, a, in an effective way. And there are things that I construct because I find them curious and exciting and interesting. So in terms of, um, am I uh, an atheist? Do I think there is no gods? I would probably go, yes, I think so. Uh, and I would be very gently sort of saying, I think we could probably cover off everything we need to explain in the world with a far smaller set of more natural processes and things like that. You know, I would take a, a, a view called naturalism and I would go, I think something like this is roughly correct, but there's still holes. There's still definitely things that we're missing. Uh, and so I'm more than happy to sort of take on new things uh, as they come along. So I'm quite happy just going, okay, I'm just going, I think this is how it works. But if that fell apart, that, that wouldn't be a big problem for me. Um, I don't actually think most of us as we're living our lives are really dependent on the fundamental nature of reality as much as <laughs> actually when I think about questions around how ought I to live, um, which I think is a very, very different question. Um, the idea of not just the God existing, but an idea of God who is omniscient and omnibenevolent, um, or not even completely perfect, maybe even just a powerful and a, a, a relatively good God. Like, it seems to me when I look at re religion now, um, those ways of trying to understand God, to access this additional information about the world, to access this additional morality that would be an inaccessible otherwise don't seem to work any more than actually these more natural processes so it's kind of a, a case of um yes in terms of the metaphysics i don't think we need god but also in terms of how we live life i i've sort of come around to the position of i don't think we need god <laughs> i for <laughs> that either I, and so i, I guess <laughs> I, I guess God, it's God's feeling quite left out at this point, isn't he? Really, so... <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, and so it's it's not a case of okay, yeah, I, I'm going to be able to present to you these incredibly strong arguments that completely disprove any possibility of any deity uh, uh, whatsoever, um, but rather, yeah, when I come to living my life and when I look at how I acted as a Christian and the challenges and concerns and problems that I now see with how I handled my ethical positions, how I handled my conduct, I would now go, no, uh, I'm completely rejecting that um, to where I'm at now. But equally, I'm aware that some of those positions that I had within my Christianity is not the same as every other Christian has within theirs. So does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's well, it's really helpful because I I think where that helps me is um is is that I quite strongly identify with with those two things that you've, you know those areas where you feel you don't need God um both in terms of epistemology knowing about the world and in terms of sort of experiential ethics like knowing what to do with your life um 
and, and what what I've connected quite a bit with with Sam, but with other people as well, is is the sort of recognition that there's all kinds of places where you could almost argue I don't need God. Where um, you know, particularly when I'm doing psychological science and studies, you know, the first thing you do is exclude entities like God. Um, and I'm really, really skeptical of any study that includes um, God. <laughs> anyway, so you probably know that there were a few studies done a few years back. Um, where they were looking at things like, you know, outcome studies for in intercessory prayer and things like that. Um, and interestingly, some of the biggest critics of that before even the results were covered were were some, you know, theologically informed Christian psychologists who said this is just ridiculous and silly and it's not psychology and we shouldn't be doing it. Um, so, so I think there's a sense in which there's all kinds of ways in which knowing things about the world, sometimes I think we do have to exclude God from that and go, that's not actually relevant to this. But then equally, just in terms of like everyday living, um, I, I definitely identify with those moments of sometimes I just have to make a sensible decision about things. And, yeah, you could say God is in the background and, you know, maybe there's there's a wider framework of Christianity that is forming some of those things. Um, but um, it, certainly there have been moments, you know, even relatively recently where I've wondered if I'm, you know, to all intents and purposes, actually an atheist, because particularly if you haven't prayed for a long time, for example. I, just really interesting, a few years back, I uh, I gave myself a challenge that I needed to pray more. And what I did at the beginning of, uh, beginning of each week was that I um, I laid out a pound um, for each day of the week on, on the windowsill next to my bed. And um, for every day I didn't pray, I put a pound in the money box. And then at the end of it, the intention was that... Um, I would donate the money to the British Secular Society. <laughs> so it's like, well, I may as well fund them if I'm not, you know, if I'm behaving as if there's no God, I may as well just give them the money and, and acknowledge it. Now, I have to say I didn't follow through on that. It would be a much better story if I'd had the integrity to do that. But um, that, that was sort of the idea that I was following, which is sort of like, and I, I'm interested about how many Christians, people who call themselves Christians to all intents and purposes, act in exactly the way you're describing, as if there is no good, you know, it makes no real impact on the way in which they view the world and, and the way in which they make their ethical decisions. And I guess that uh, I would be interested to hear a bit more from you in terms of, because that that is what I find curious, um, obviously about you in terms of, you know, you are this professional psychologist, you, you seem to have a very good grasp of, you know, existentialism and how to support people through sort of difficult times in their life, irrespective of God. Uh, and so, you know, one of the key things that I find when people exp like have found out that I'm an atheist, it's almost like pity. Like I've lost this key thing, which for them probably has helped them through some pretty difficult times in their life and has given them hope when they, they didn't have it. And I, you know, I'm not there trying to rip that away from them in any way, of course, but at the same time, they, they feel like I've now lost that. So I'm just curious, just to press into that a little bit more and sort of understand from you, like, how do you think about that then? How, how do you think about actually what are the benefits of the Christian faith, you know, to you or, or to others 
if if you know some of these other coping mechanisms and ways of thinking about this yeah yeah i i mean i don't really see it as separable in quite this so kind of um so for example they, there's quite a large literature on something called post-traumatic growth which you may have heard of which is basically the way in which people respond to really difficult things that have come their way um and part of that literature is the religious coping literature in terms of saying how do religious people use god in those moments um and i have to say i i don't reduce faith to to coping but i'm really happy to say it's one of the functions that performs uh, for people um I, and the literature is really really it's quite extensive and it's really interesting but um it, it basically sort of comes out with three main ways in which people use god in tragedy what one is what they would call deferring which is sort of like it's all in god's hands i do nothing i just sort of lay back it's almost fatalistic really um and then a, another version would be a sort of um it's all down to me so very self-reliant strategy so those are people for whom uh i, I guess prayer becomes a, a form of sort of um spiritual meditation really it's not it's not it doesn't have any effect it's not supposed to do anything it's all down to you but nevertheless that prayerfulness helps a little bit um on some level um and then the third one is um what some people would call the collab the collaborative or um the corroborative way of viewing God, which is almost this idea that you're kind of in a partnership with God, um, that there's, it, it's kind of like the old the old thing, you know, pray and take the paracetamol. It's that kind of idea, which is um, step by step, bit by bit. So I guess when I, when I know, for example, Christians who've gone through cancer and gone through cancer well, let's say, so they haven't on the one hand idealized it and thought it will all go away really easily, um, which I sometimes find leads to some pretty difficult places, nor have they sort of taken it really fatalistically, like God is now punishing me and this is it. Um, they, they've taken it in a step-by-step -step way where I guess the, the comforts of God, if you like, or the, the, um, uh, the consolations available in Christianity have not been there in one big dose. They've been a step-by-step -step process. This doctor said this, I met this person on the ward. I had this good conversation there. And so, um, God is somehow woven into the fabric of all that kind of stuff. Um, and I guess that probably is the way my my kind of relationship with God, if you want to use that word, that, that's the way it works really. It's woven into the fabric of life in all these kind of different ways. Um, I, I guess the difficulty with that is that it's then very, very difficult to, you know, when you ask the question, which bits, you know, how do you isolate God in this situation? It's really, really difficult to do that. And um, even though there are moments where I would say I have seen answers to prayer that I would view as very dramatic and beyond coincidence, I don't think there's any way of proving that it wasn't just a benevolent coincidence that occurred, you know, oh, that was good. It just happened. You know, I, I don't think there's any there's no there's no explanatory mechanism that gets you from one place to another. I mean, I think there are some that we could talk about, maybe, but there's no supernatural explanatory mechanism that explains how something like that could happen in a bigger we could talk about the butterfly effect you know a small prayer here leads to a big effect there we could talk about um emotional contagion me feeling good or loving ripples through a system and causes health and all kinds of things we could talk about endorphins where i touch you know put my hand on someone and it gives them a, an endorphin rush that makes their pain go away you know there's all kinds of different ways we could just explain it naturally um, but but I, I guess I, I'm sort of holding to the idea that there's something bigger and something deeper and something more that's um, 
that, that but it's not an object and it's not a single cause in the thing it's the entire system so it's closer to something like the notion of atmosphere than it is to a particular behavior or action or thought so so that's my sort of my slightly struggling way of trying to explain some of the ways in which i see god in these things yeah that's that's interesting because um <clears throat> i i guess i completely uh, uh, or maybe similarly understanding that idea of god being so interwoven with everything because i think one of the things which i think is really helpful when a lot of people talk about deconstruction is just that realization of actually whether that is a real god or <clears throat> this religious construction there is it, it's so interwoven and you're constantly just going through life going oh there's another thing that actually has been so influenced and so informed by my understanding of who god was or religion and the purpose of life um so i guess yeah sorry to interrupt daniel but but you do know we're, we're about to have someone on the show with me and sam who's done this research on what he calls duns has sam told you about this that there's some research just been done, some epidemiological research across Europe and America just been completed. Like you, you've heard about the rise of the nuns, people who say no religion, you know, that that's kind of quite a, a common thing. But this psychologist um, uh, ha has done some really interesting work on what he calls the duns, those people who've left faith. Um, and he, he he's picking up exactly what you're saying, which he's saying they seem to carry away with them a whole set of ethical and social and um, maybe even spiritual norms with them, even though they're done with religion, they still carry away all, all these kind of things that, that you don't find in people who just say, I have no religion and have never had any religion. Yeah. That's, I, I look forward to that conversation because yeah, that's, that's exactly it because this is that constant tension of, okay, just because I've left, it doesn't mean I have to leave everything. Like I, I've got this, the, all these things now that I can, some of which are helpful, some of which are unhelpful and sort of figuring out, you know, what do I peel back and tear away? And what do I just go? Great. Uh, thank, thanks for the fish so long. Um, it's, <laughs> it's kind of a, an interesting dynamic, but I guess like, so in your understanding, like, I guess that's really interesting just in terms of you don't see your faith, you don't see your belief in God as this one thing, this one clearly defined, clearly scoped belief, but rather sort of different aspects of your belief in different areas of life and that gentle weaving in and out. Well, well that, I mean, it's one of the, it, let, let me try out something on you that I've been thinking. Okay. I haven't really said this to Sam. I haven't said this is the first time I've ever said this publicly. So you can tell me if it, if it rings true to you is that, so as me and Sam have been talking a lot, I've, he, you know, the thing he says to me frequently, both on air and privately as well, is he just wants me to have better reasons to believe in God, really. Like that's what he's pushing for really hard. And so from his point of view, kind of, me believing in God is a problem of reason, really. I don't have good reasons. And then the back and forth, as you've heard, that he and I have is that I, I, I think he's making just as many assumptions to sort of build his worldview as I am. And I think we just both have to be honest about that. But, but the more 
things have gone on the the more and as we've started to talk about some of his experiences with uh, uh psilocybin and and sort of psychedelics and things like that i've started to wonder if the issue with god is not so much a difference of reason and even belief maybe or maybe it's just a difference in perception so it's it's um so let's say if god is woven through everything so much so that we're all exposed to it all the time like white noise whatever god is it's just there all the time then you can equally perceive that as nothing as of something and um therefore the debate me and sam have and the you know some of the things i've said that have really pissed him off privately when we've talked about these kind of things is um you know i have this sort of deep contemplative spirituality where in silence i would say i encounter the presence of god now in a way that that is pretty profound and really meaningful and feels very you could almost say physically present to me um uh, and he he just you know effectively says it, it's just bullshit. there's just nothing there Roger. <laughs> you know, you're, just, you're just doing a bit of mindfulness and relaxing and that's all that's going on um and as we've talked I've increasingly begun to is that what it is and please understand I'm not as, I'm not adding any ethical element to that that what I'm saying I'm just saying I perceive something as being present and he perceives something as being at you know there's I think there's something there he thinks there's nothing there. And to me, that sounds like differences in perception, not differences in reasoning, really. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's interesting because I guess part of me would want to, and it, just to pick up one thing you said there. Sorry, I'm I'm floundering a bit, but one thing which I think was really important, you you clarified and you said you're not in, you're not saying anything ethical there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I guess for me, this is sort of where I then come down to the question, because is by saying that there's a something there rather than a nothing there. I mean, part of me wants to go, clearly there's still an experience. We want to understand, well, why am I having this experience? Why am I so at peace right now? Why am I enjoying this meditation? What is it that I'm connecting with here? Is it that sort of that primal human is it like a, just a, a true state of rest like i've just been able to give my brain which is usually firing off at a million miles per hour just a bit of space yeah. um yeah to sit and be quiet or am i touching into like something transcendent something that mm -hmm. is that could be described as god um part of me goes i'm more open to that question the bits where it then starts to switch for me is when someone goes, I've had that experience uh, or and, and therefore I'm now going to start making these other ethical claims that I would not make otherwise uh, except for this experience. And then all of a sudden for me, it's almost like rather than talking about certain truth, it's rather how much confidence do we have in something and what is the cost of getting that wrong? Because you believing that there's something in those experiences, it's not costly. <laughs> like yeah. if, if you're wrong, you will pass away and well, there won't be anything waiting for you. <laughs> you know, there's, it's kind of a, there's, there's no loss there. I, and I, yeah. so therefore a part of me is just like, well, then we can be free and open about that. Fine, crack on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas as soon as someone, and obviously this is, and as, to a certain extent, why I call myself a, an atheist 
as a clear signal if if you want to talk religion like it's going to be a difficult I, conversation like i am going <laughs> to be challenged on this is when actually so many religions go hey look at that bit there okay now we're going to put on top of that you know various expectations you know and obviously the big ones especially in today's society and christianity uh, is around sexual ethics gender identity and things like that which i think well i think those are bad big risks to place upon what is something which is so uncertain and could just be like mm. this subtle uh, change in perception so yeah, yeah. And you are sort of pointing to some of my own doubt there by in in you saying that. So, um, I, I I mean, we've talked a little bit about it on the show, but the first book I wrote was called The God Lab, and basically the idea behind that was the idea of I I seem to be having these. I, I think I, I'm onto something here. It was basically the, the the idea. I keep trying these kind of practices and things like that, and I think I'm experiencing something. And I'm just wondering if you experience the same thing when you do them too. Like that was the idea, basically. Um, and so I guess if I'm following any kind of route in terms of extending it in what you might call an evangelistic or a missionary kind of way, it's more along the lines of what practices am I doing here that seem to produce this kind of effect, this kind of experience, which I would then go on to say it is good because it's an experience of loving and it certainly makes me more loving and more considerate and more open. And um, it, it is an experience of loving the I would say loving God, it's an experience of, but, um, you know, it's an experience of me loving something anyway, if the something is nothing. And and it all gets confusing because then all the mystics say, well, God is nothing anyway. So that's what, you you know, so it just gets, <laughs> gets stuck in the whole thing. But, um, but, but I do think whatever that thing is that I'm doing, it, it's, it, it is a really good thing. Um, and I, and then I'm happy to share it with others, but I'm equally happy to, to say some people, it just doesn't do it for them. And maybe I happen to be of that sort of kind of mystical, effective kind of disposition. And so it really lands for me. Um, I, and I sort of run retreats and, and in a lot of the retreats, we'll have people who sort of defer from it and say, this just isn't working for me. And I'm like, listen, this, you know, it's not like you failed a test by, you know, by this not being your way in. Um, so, so I, I then have that doubt of, I know this really works for me and I can't, I really believe it and it's really good and I'm going to keep doing it probably for the rest of my life in some way, shape or form. Um, but, but then wondering if it's, uh, it, we should, should, have you ever read Farback, Ludwig Farback, The Essence of Christianity? I, I've read bits of it. I've not read yeah. his entire work yet, but yeah. So, so, so he has these sort of three different versions of atheism that he talks about. And we usually, we usually only talk about the first one. And the first one is basically the idea that we work out that God is just a projection of, you know, a powerful figure, you know, it's us projecting our own power onto, onto a sort of blank screen. But, but there's another one he talks about, which is more appropriate to, to what I'm talking about. He says, there's a hidden form of atheism that some Christians have. And um, he says, it's when you think God is just God for you, but may not be for anybody else. Um, he said, it's the equivalent of me saying that that um, my sister is just my sister for me, but she's not my sister for anybody else. 
and and I think if there's a if there's a dilemma in what I'm sort of getting into and explaining working with it's how does this experience that seems deeply meaningful and important to me and let's be clear it is framed you know in the biblical narrative in a particular tradition in a particular community that that's all part of the framework in which that experience is held in fact you could almost say that the experience itself is a kind of hermeneutic of the bible and of and of that that, that sort of tradition in certain respects um but, but it's kind of the question of how do you convey it you know how do you how do you find out if that is also true for other people and so that and so that's why i end up saying this feels like a perception thing can i just say one more thing about perception because it's just remind me of another really fascinating study that's just worth mentioning um as as we go past because the the neuropsychologist um andrew newberg who's the sort of founder of neurotheology and looking at you know how spiritual experience are created by the brain he he did this really really fascinating perceptual priming task with um, people who scored very high in religiosity and people who scored low in religiosity. And what he discovered is that in a, it, it's, it's hard to explain the study, but basically what happened is in looking at a picture, um, Christians in, the, in this example were more likely to see things that weren't there. You know, they were more likely to sort of, you know, see something was hinted at in the picture somehow that wasn't actually in the picture. And then when they when they sort of flipped the task and did it with atheists in, in a slightly different way, they found it was more likely that atheists were more likely not to see things that were there. Um, and so I started, I have just started to wonder, is there just some kind of difference in perception going on here in terms of how tightly or how sharply you, you want to construe the world? And maybe, you know, I just have a slightly broader conceptual field in the way that, you know, people who have migraines have a slightly broader way of viewing the world that people who don't um it, it, is it something like that i don't know but but um so, so i'm starting to think it, are we really talking about perception and is there any really is there any need to make that ethical so is there any read for need for me to make you wrong or you know unethical for some reason because you just don't have the, the experiences that i might have even if we're in the same set even if we were sort of doing the same practices we may come away viewing them really differently yeah, that's that's really interesting. I like uh, I've heard about that study, um, and and part of me was sort of sat there going, it wouldn't surprise me, just due to historical factors that the people, particularly people who leave faith, would have some sort of different psychology to those that stay within it. That there would be perhaps a bit more independence and willing to go against the group because. You know, in making that sort of decision, you do need to go against your group um, yeah, yeah. in making that, um, and perhaps in that that sort of perception. And you know, I am someone who's very analytical when I can be, so I will still try and want to get down to something precise and clear terms um, to my own frustration. It's, because, yeah, yeah, it's it's something I admire about you and Sam. I, I think particularly you, you, the sort of willingness. I mean, I don't know if it's even the willingness, but the necessity that you've both had to sort of embrace some pretty extreme social isolation in order to take the journey that you've taken. Um, and certainly, again, kind of looking at some of the research on critical thinking, for example, one of the things that it's really good at is making sure that we don't get manipulated or made to conform with something we're not willing to go with. And so... I think I sit I sit with some admiration for both you and Sam on that. And I, I view it as something that I'm lower in than you guys. I, I view you as kind of being much stronger in that kind of stuff than I would be necessarily. And I guess just 
just back on sort of the experiences, because, you know, I, you know, just recently I was um, listening to uh, uh, an Orthodox liturgy. Um, so back when I was, was a Christian, I did spend some time um, at a Russian Orthodox, uh, not a Russian Orthodox. Um, it was it was Orthodox, but it was part of the um, British uh, segment. Yeah. Um, which reported into Constantinople, which is important considering current political events that yeah. are going on in the <laughs> Orthodox's, uh, Orthodox Church's problem with it. Um, but um, yeah, I there are few other occasions which I could point to in my life where I could say that I was in, you know, sort of that spiritual state that you're describing. Um, but so many of them were during the Orthodox liturgy, being in the church, um, um, being surrounded by a liturgy, which I could understand that I understood that for me was so historical and sort of grounded me in what I understood as my tradition, which went back centuries and millennia and listening to something, knowing this is what they were listening to albeit in a different language, all those hundreds of years ago. And so part of me wants to go, okay, so like when you're describing your experience, like I'm, I'm sort of connecting it to that and sort of understanding that at the time I would have told you, yeah, yeah, this was the Holy Spirit moving in me. This was me being a Christian in its fullest form, being part of this eternal church um, in worship to God. And even now I would still look at that sort of situation and going okay i don't hold to that interpretation of the events and yet actually i still value those those moments uh and i can still value um what i think other people are experiencing in that and actually would sort of want to try and find an equivalent which allows me to still have that experience to allow still allow me to feel connected to humanity because i no longer need to limit it to the church i get uh, and find that sort of quiet and stillness that that still that i can interpret as something which is good even if it is just to my own experience um of life and, and sort of the experience within my own mind and so I, I'm, I'm kind of curious just to press on your interpretation then of other religious experiences that people have within other faiths. And obviously then my endeavor to sort of find that through meditation and stuff like that. Do you think that that's, that they're one and the same? And that they are just these different perceptions on what could be the same thing, whether that same thing is a something or a nothing? Um, or, or do you still think that Christianity has something special that these things don't? And that fundamentally, I'm, I'm never going to quite find what I had back uh, back in those liturgy days. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really good question. So, um, so you know, j just to be really annoying, I probably have to say I don't really know to begin with. So let, let's start with that. Um, but but I guess. Um, so, so be, because I'm in the world of psychology and because that's therefore exposed me to a lot of mindfulness and I, you know, I'm a mindfulness trainer and practitioner. Um, 
I, and that, that also just naturally has exposed me to a lot of people who are Buddhists and I've sort of visited Buddhist centers and sort of, you know, been taught meditation by people who've worked with the Dalai Lama. I've even had sort of people in sort of saffron robes um, attending my lectures and then talking to me about, you know, me talking to them about my experience of, you know, Christian meditation and likewise. So, so I've been very much in that world. And so, so I think firstly, um, how do I put this? So firstly, I guess I do think there is something special about a contemplative state directed towards Jesus. So I do think that that is that is just by definition different from a contemplative state directed towards others. Um, I've I've been really, really impressed by some of the sort of Buddhist and even Islamic mystics that I've made to the extent where I, I feel really unable to say that wasn't God that they're experiencing, you know, so I'm sort of open to the idea and also actually increasingly open to the idea that that Christians have an enormous amount to learn from, you know, Buddhist psychology. And uh, I know you've sort of read quite a bit of Taoism, haven't you as well? I, I love the sort of Taoism stuff. And I think that, that there's something about that sort of egoless way of being that I think has all kinds of psychological alignments with notions of death of self and things like that, which I think are very strong in Christianity as well. Um, I, I think the, the evangelical part of me dies hard. So um, even though that there are some people I really admire, like Thomas Merton, for example, who were very open to sort of uh, uh, it, kind of cross-cultural dialogue with all kinds of different religions and just viewed it all of this is all God, I, I, uh, or this is all equivalent to Christianity. I, I sort of struggle to go there at the moment, but I wonder if maybe I am heading a bit more in that direction. Um, but at the same time, people I know who are quite strong in that dialogue will say, nevertheless, they hold that there is something unique and special uh, that in their commitment to Jesus. So I guess summarizing all that up, I would say I sit in a position of commitment, but openness. Uh, for me personally, I haven't found in, in the practice of mindfulness or yoga or you know similar practices like that, I haven't found them to be anywhere near as powerful for me or as meaningful as what you might call similar states of contemplation of Christianity. So that, that's just my experience um, of them. Um, but I, I think I, as I've probably discussed on the show a few times, nevertheless, I've been in a situation of teaching students mindfulness and that kind of stuff. And I, I view it as a, a good thing for them to learn and that it's very beneficial. And if my aim in life is to help people be more like Jesus, so more compassionate and more gentle and more self-controlled and those kind of things, and it's something overtly Christian is objectionable to them, then I'm I'm kind of like, well, actually, you know what? Mindfulness is actually quite a good way to go and a good way to sort of investigate those things. And then the more secular investigation that I do of character strengths, which is compassion and gratitude and wisdom and all those kind of stuff, much of which never, never references Christianity. It's purely sort of secular scientific, you know, if we do X, do we get Y? It's that kind of, that kind of construction. Um, so, so I, I guess the answer is um, I don't fully know, but I'm not close to the idea that that God is around all the time and people encounter Him in all kinds of strange ways, including my own mindfulness groups where I don't I don't mention God at all. Many people don't know that I'm a Christian. 
And yet multiple times people have had experiences where if I'd been in a Pentecostal church, I would have said, oh, the Toronto blessing is happening here, you know, because they're shaking or they suddenly get zapped by some sort of overwhelming feeling that hits them. Um, and, I, and I'm happy to call that God. I'm even happy perhaps to call it the Holy Spirit, but they wouldn't necessarily call it that. And I, I don't try and in, in that context, I don't impose a meaning on them. I might say, if you know, when that happens to me, I call it this. And they might go, oh, when it happens to me, I call it the earth goddess, <laughs> you know, something like that. They might have some other interpretation of it. Um, but I'm sort of open. It, it's kind of like the, the words of Jacob in scripture, isn't it? When he runs away from home and he says, God was here and I knew it not. I think that's my experience of living life in a very secular environment is that all the time I run into these sort of experiences that I'm happy to call God but remain anonymous, really. You know, very few other people might, uh, very, yeah, other people might not interpret it that way. Will you support when belief dies? Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything we do. There are three ways you can support when belief dies. Firstly, would you rate when belief dies in Apple Podcasts and over on Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, would you share this episode with your family, friends and followers? We grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog, podcast and YouTube channel. All the links are in the description and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's conversation. I guess the sceptic in me comes out <laughs> to a certain really? extent. <laughs> Because, Imagine my surprise. <laughs> <laughs> because part of me wants to go, okay, like I, I'm trying to think of a, a good example. And I think the best one is um, alien abductions. So I'm, I'm trying to remember, but um, I believe it was uh, um, a long time since I read this. So forgive me if I, I completely hash it, but I it should make the point that I'm making. Um, but that people for a long time have reported having alien abductions. But when aliens were shown on television, the narratives of those alien abductions sort of all came very similar. Like there was this understanding of what it means to be abducted by aliens. And so people start reporting these experiences of being abducted by aliens. Now, I actually think people are probably expressing something which they believe is true to their experience in quite a few of these cases, but their experiences has been developed by what they're told about what it is to be abducted by aliens. And so part of me wants to go, if we didn't have this understanding of God and spirituality as we understand it um, in Western society from that, that, late Christian legacy and the ecstatics and some of those things which have been passed down, would we, like, if we had just grown up in a Buddhist society, we, 
like if you had been grown up in a Buddhist society, would you be going through some similar exercises that are perhaps analogous to what you're doing? And once again, it's just that you've just got a different perception and you wouldn't be applying that term God to these things. Hmm. I, I mean, I, I think that's almost definitely true. I, I just think that that is correct in the sense that um, so this is where my kind of notion of me saying sort of mystical experience, in a sense, is a form of hermeneutic in that in that I guess, um, you know, I've, I've been raised in a particular culture um, in, you know, I was raised in a relatively sort of liberal Methodist church, really. So it wasn't sort of Pentecostal or evangelical, but um every now and then I would experience something that I think that something real, that was some atmosphere or that I, I well, they, the way I put it is that was God. I, I experienced God. And then whatever that experience is, that felt sense of it's always hard to put these things into words that became the thing I chased therefore for the rest of my life. So in a sense, I sort of made that experience the center of, of my life. Um, and I guess that's how I ended up being the Christian that I am really like, it was a sort of pursuit of that kind of thing. But the whole thing was held in a framework of uh, tradition and particular practices and particular ways of interpreting it. Um, and I guess this is sort of, you know, where my, my view of the Bible comes from really is that sort of, I, I feel that the Bible points us into those kind of experiences. That, that's basically what it's designed to do ultimately. Um, and that if there's any part of the Bible, and therefore I sort of, I have this relationship with the Bible where, you know, I've, I've read it, you know, dozens of times and I went through a phase in my sort of young adult life where, I, you know, I just, just reading so much of it, it was ridiculous. Um, so know the Bible very, very well, very committed to it, but carried this idea that I don't fully understand it, that just having read it, doesn't mean I get what's going on. Um, and I guess I, I haven't really articulated it like this before, but I think it would be true to say that I usually think until I've experienced a passage in the Bible, I don't get it. I don't understand it. So in a sense, you could say that I, I'm living in this experiential hermeneutic cycle. So this is where Sam tells me that I'm sniffing my own farts. That's his way of putting it. But it's kind of like, I am living in this cyclical thing of where the Bible points me into certain experiences and then those certain experiences point me back into a reinterpretation of the Bible. And the Bible isn't the only thing involved. You know, there's all kinds of other ingredients throwing themselves in the tradition, the particular experiences I've had, my parenting, you know, all that kind of stuff just all comes together. Um, so I, I, in typical when belief dies fashion, I've now completely lost track of the question. <laughs> well, just just to because actually that was kind of where i was going to ask uh, about next was you said a contemplative state directed towards jesus in particular and i guess that that would then be my next question in terms of well obviously we both know that there was probably a guy two thousand years ago called jesus and he did some things and we would we could go on forever about what precisely may or may not have happened but obviously you're not about 2000 years ago. So where is this Jesus coming from? Is that coming from, you know, uh, a commitment to, okay, I'm going to trust the Bible is accurate and sort of try and recreate a historical Jesus, or is it sort of this sort of, as you were sort of saying that mystical hermeneutic sort of, uh, uh, sort of building on one another? 
Yeah, it's it's such a complex question, and and it leads to some even more difficult questions, doesn't it? Once we start thinking down down these lines, because um, the the end the end. Let's get jump to the end of where we sometimes end up when we talk about it in this way. Is that um, I mean, if you look at the sort of history of mysticism, really, it, most mystics, particularly before the Reformation, at least, sort of had this view that you could read scripture literally, but that wasn't the really deep meaning of it. The really deep meaning. There's all these weird you know, ideas they come up with around it. Um, and you could, in a sense, say, I'm I'm coming up with a version of that. And then and then the difficult question right at the end of that becomes, OK, well, if, if you're using the Bible as this sort of mystical handbook that points you into an experience, does it have to be true? Like, that's the really thorny kind of question that lies behind it, I think. Um, so, so, so I guess the way I, I'm viewing it is that... Um, I, I use the Bible. Let's take the Gospels when we're talking about Jesus. Let's stick with that just to narrow things down a little bit. Um, that the Gospels are there to be meditated on, to be contemplated over. And as you do so um, in openness to goodness and openness to the Holy Spirit in, in a community that's doing something pretty simple, similar um, in a historical tradition where people have sort of had those similar experiences. Um, I, I guess what happens for me is that the person of Jesus becomes more vivid and more lively uh, and more compelling and um, it becomes a spiritual model, basically. So so it's sort of the idea that um, I mean, this is the interesting thing. So so again, if I cite some of the literature on spiritual modeling, there is this idea that, you, that people take a model. So whether it's Muhammad or Buddha or Jesus, so it can even be a fictional character, you take these things and they sort of become part of you. Uh, and they live through and you model yourself on them if if you find them laudable um, in some way, shape or form. Um, and I, I know we could debate the, the historicity of the Gospels and you've probably heard me and Sam going round and round in circles on it and not really getting anywhere. And, and in the sense, I still hold to that sort of critical realist view of it, which is something roughly like this happened. But I don't I don't want to have to make too much of the fact that did, did Judas hang himself or did he fall over and his bowels fell out? You know, all those kind of, you know, those sort of different, I, 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 it just doesn't bother me that much that different people had different sort of traditions going on just to say something roughly happened here. Um, and therefore, I guess the sort of, I guess if I go back to where for me, the certainty of the Christian life lives. So if you go right back to the very first episode, the thing I first said to Sam, which I think is the thing I'm most certain about is that, of the ways of living I've so far investigated, following Jesus to me feels like the best one. Like, you know, I'm open to other things and looking at other stuff and thinking through. But in terms of particularly looking at things like the Sermon on the Mount, that seems to be the way of living that to me looks uh, most beautiful, uh, most ethical. Um, uh, there's, I'll, I'll anticipate an objection here. There isn't, there is a sort of, um, there's a circularity in saying um, Jesus is the most ethical. And so following Jesus is the way to be like Jesus, which is the most ethical. So there's a sort of circle going on there. But but the certainty in it, I think, sits in, in the Sermon on the Mount at the end, where it's basically you build your house of your life on a rock uh, by doing what he says, you know, following those words and seeing where they lead you. Um, and that journey is really a lifetime. And it's a lifetime of correction and change and alteration and wondering um so in that sense it sort of feels more like a journey than than a destination so so christianity isn't a set of beliefs i sign up to and agree to it's a set of directions that i follow 
some of the times wondering if I'm going quite the right way or if I've understood them correctly or if the destination I'm heading to even exists. You know, all those questions can be there, but nevertheless, the journey seems like a good journey to me. So I guess, what do you do? You, you're talking there about the ethical and the beautiful in in this character of Jesus. So what do you do with the ugly bits? Because I guess this would then be sort of where, you know, for me, I uh, when I was a Christian, I think I always took the Bible to have had an, uh, an author's intent. And so when I did read it, I was, I wasn't quite happy with this sort of mystical understanding because it kind of just was a understanding that I felt, well, it could just float around. And basically then I could make the Bible say whatever I want to say. And I do want to understand what God is saying, not what I'm saying. And I'm just using this as my launch board for what I want to do. Um, but equally, I always bore that with, yeah, but I'm looking at, this book as a 21st century guy after the enlightenment, after this very rigid notion of truth that I don't think the authors were actually applying when they wrote it. So, um, you know, I always had, uh, the example that comes to mind is there's the genealogy in Genesis that's so often used for your working out that the earth is only 6,000 odd years old. And I was like, no, that's that's dumb. The point is the author's going, hey, look, the lifespans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter and everyone's dying. This wasn't the plan. We're getting further and we're further away from the garden. So people are living shorter lives. And there's a, a theological story there that is being told. The numbers, they like they would have said the numbers, they would have believed the numbers, but that's not actually the truth that they're looking for when they when they're writing that. So I was always trying to figure these things out, but equally there are some parts of the Bible where it's just ugly and it's, it's just a big deal. I'm, I'm like, I forget the full passage, so you'll have to forgive me, but obviously just to pick on Jesus and, and go for the gospels, yeah. obviously uh, there is, uh, there is a passage with a woman who asks for healing and he says, um, a master doesn't give the children's foods to the dogs, yeah. implying you're a Gentile, you're, yeah. you're, you're this animal as opposed to the children, uh, the Jews. Um, how, how do passages like that then fit into this faith? Is it just, yeah. uh, I, well, I find what's beautiful and ethical and I hold on to those, but those bits I just yeah. blank out. Um, how, how are you handling <laughs> that bit? Yeah. I mean, do you want to know how I handle that particular passage? I mean, I could talk specifically about that. Or are you talking generally about? I'm, I'm more interested in the methodology, but obviously I've sort yeah. of thrown that in there, just building on sort of your idea of the construction of Jesus. Yeah. So if you wanted to yeah. use that as the example. Because I, I mean, I actually find that quite an exciting passage in terms of, sort of the hermeneutic of it, in terms of it's, it's one of those examples where Jesus does something really counterintuitive. Um, what we usually think um and it's also one of the passages that for me shows jesus's humanity best as well um in the sense that if you sort of 
um I mean, it, it always depends how you contextualize it, depending on which gospel you're reading. So um, forgive me, I'm also not referencing correct, you know, not giving my full chapter and verse right now. Um, but but what in one of the gospels anyway, that that moment comes at a moment where Jesus has retreated from it. So he's had a sort of moment um, in Galilee where, you know, all the great and the good have come from Jerusalem to hear him speak and it's gone disastrously wrong and they've basically rejected him and want nothing to do with him. And the next thing it says is, so Jesus retreats with his disciples off to outside of Galilee, outside of his nation, and therefore they're staying somewhere out there. And that's the context in which this happens. So Jesus has been rejected by his own people um, this woman turns up just making a fuss and will not shut up, you know, just keeps chasing him and hectoring him and saying, you know, I want, you know, you're a healer, come and heal my daughter. Um, and from Jesus's point of view, this is outside of his mission. Um, but what I find really, really interesting, there's almost, so, so firstly, um, the, the word that it says is that she prostrates herself before Jesus. And in that word of worship and prostrate is the word dog. And so when Jesus is saying, you know, um, why would I give it to the dogs? He's kind of, it could almost be a joke or a twinkle in his eye. Here you are bowing and scraping before me like a dog. Why, why would I respect you to give you this? So whether he's saying it in an abusive way or whether he's saying it in a, a sort of ironic way, I don't know. But I also think, I, and this is one possible interpretation, but I almost think like there's a moment of revelation in Jesus's mind at that moment where he's going, I'm I'm here, you know, to speak to the people of Israel, but you know what? That hasn't been going that well lately. <laughs> like I've I've just tried it, and they fundamentally rejected everything I've said, and so I almost feel like that sort of dawns on Jesus as he says it, um, and that's the moment at which he makes the connection with the woman, and she pushes through and goes, "No, I I know you can help me, sort me out," and then Jesus um, willingly helps her, and I think there's a sort of sense of compassion and joy. So. So that particular passage, I actually find very engaging, but um, I, I all, it also, as you can tell in the way I'm sort of talking about it, I have a very, very human view of Jesus, you know, a view of Jesus who is, who is learning, um, who, who is working things out as he goes along, who doesn't necessarily have this sort of, he doesn't have a sort of three-year plan that ends in crucifixion. He knows that ultimately that's kind of where it's going to end up. That's inevitable, really, I think, in where he's having something like that. But I think along the way, he's sort of being guided by the circumstances that greet him and the people that turn up. And I I don't have this idea of Jesus being omniscient where, you know, in his incarnation um, during that period of time. Um, so that so that's that that, that passage. Um, are there, so I guess my my hermeneutic is is to is to love Jesus. <laughs> it's not very good. It's like I'm like. Um, do I, I'm just wondering, do I hold the view that Jesus is always right? I just have to find out how. <laughs> I'm wondering if, you know, I, perhaps I have to admit that I have a bias towards Jesus, you know, towards trying to find out what, what would the most favorable view of this passage be that would make Jesus consistent with what he teaches. Um, so I guess I, I probably am trying to forge a consistent Jesus rather than one who seems to be nice in some situations and nasty in others. And you never know what you're going to get when you approach him, you know, so you end up with this sort of schizophrenically mad Jesus, um, which, you know, sometimes I have had that view, but, um, but, but I, I feel like I can see a pretty consistent 
very human, very winsome, very energetic Jesus, which means that um, some of the things that look cruel and nasty if we read them very blandly could be lively jokes said with a twinkle in the eye. Um, even when he's you know saying to his disciples, how long do I have to put up with you and all those kind of moments. Um, I, I just view that as a very human person just at their wits end going, for flip's sake. How long is this going to go on? You know, I think about the number of times I will say that to my students, students that I like, and they come in and they've done something bad in their dissertation or something. And I say, for goodness sake, why have you done that? How how many times do I have to tell you? And I'm not saying that because I dislike them. I'm saying that because I think they're better than that and I want them to do better. Um, and so I guess I, I do have a bias towards viewing Jesus positively. Okay. And then I guess outside of Jesus, because obviously Jesus arrives into a context, um, the context of sort of the Jewish people and that story based on yeah. the Old Testament, and then obviously where the church went, uh, and sort of Paul and his writings in particular. I guess I'd just be curious to understand, well, how does this strong picture of Jesus um, then help you understand those two aspects because that's where some of the rubber could really hit the road yeah. and yeah you start getting into evangelicalism and, yeah. and some of those yeah. assumptions yeah it's a, it's a good question i so i suppose i do take that sort of i i guess it's the i, I think it's the anabaptists were the people who are most on it wasn't it which is the gospels are the center of everything and everything has to be translated through that so that's like the hermeneutic key of everything so you know, if Paul says something that doesn't seem to chime well with the Gospels, the Gospels are a win and you have to work out how do we then fit this together. Um, let, let me say something about bias, though, because I know you you and Sam talk a lot about bias, don't you, and different biases. And um, what uh, have, have you heard about the fundamental attribution error in bias? This kind of idea that if um, it's basically we, we see it in politics all the time, it's basically if um, something goes well, I did it. Thank you very much. We attribute internally. If something goes badly, it's everybody else's fault kind of thing. Um, and and my view of um, how certain more conservative or fundamentalist people interpret scripture is that they use the fundamental attribution error all the time. Any Everything great is about them and everything awful is about everybody else. So I, I would tend to read some of the nasty passages as challenges to me as a, as a Christian, not as you know, condemning other people. So I think a lot of Jesus's words about hell, they're to the Pharisees, they're to religious people like me. They're not about, you know, the people of the land who were, you know, religiously not educated, didn't didn't have that kind of idea. The the other, so, so I so I try and almost notice that sort of bias in me when I'm reading it. So so if there are nasty things, I have to think, how is that a challenge to me? Um, it's it's the way you read the you know how proverbs quite often talk about the fool and the wise man and actually i spent ages trying to work out who's foolish and who's wise and then i realized we're all both you know it's about you know trying to draw a line through yourself in terms of you know when do i tend in these sort of directions um, and then the other bias that i think is really really important particularly when it comes to reading paul especially um is that we have a very strong negativity bias, which if, if there's something nasty said somewhere, or even if we perceive it to be nasty, that will colour um, everything else. You know, that will stand out much more strongly in our minds than anything that's good or nice. Um, and I, I think it was particularly at university, I began to realise that I had a much more sophisticated view of sin and how bad things were and how bad other people were than I did of 
goodness of love of kindness and when paul says things like the you know how high and wide and deep and long the love of christ is i think he's really saying this thing is bigger and deeper and wider and has more texture and more nuance and more things to talk about than anything you might say that's that's negative so when it comes to paul for example um like some of the statistics i've done reading through the 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 new testament for example so so there's 53 occasions in which paul is thankful gives is grateful gives thanks in some way whether it's for other people for himself to god to jesus you know it's all there um I, and then if you look at all the other sort of letter writers or alleged letter writers in the new testament whether it's peter james john whoever and um, zero that's not a single occurrence of thanks um in any of them if, if you just to go purely by the terms that they use so it's kind of 53 nil to Paul. I, and once I realized that, I realized that you couldn't understand Paul until you started reading him through the lens of gratitude. Um, that that actually, that that's the fundamental. I, and you might have heard me say it to Sam that my view is, if we want to talk about salvation and what God has done that is good, the first response isn't who's in and who's out and who's bad and I'm now better than somebody else. The first response actually is gratitude. The first response is, I i'm just really really enjoying the goodness of being you know the best thing about being a christian is being a christian not slagging off people who aren't or comparing myself to people who are outside um so, so i guess that there are a couple of my one of my hermeneutic principles i guess is to overcome the the sort of fundamental attribution error and then also overcome negativity bias in the way i read the bible which, which means doesn't make those nasty difficult passages go away but it does balance them and prevent my natural tendency to sort of fall into the black hole of the bad stuff by making sure that I'm actually really giving the good stuff the, the weighting it, it deserves in its context. Yeah, okay. That's, um, I'm, I'm trying to think through that because, yeah, I guess part of me is like, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. Obviously, it's been a long time since I've read Paul's letters now. Um, but yeah, when he talks about when he's challenging other Christians, he's sort of like, why are you squandering this gift? Like actually he, his understanding of salvation was it was a gift. And so therefore, you know, live in that, the reality of that rather than this, you act, act for salvation. Or certainly that's how I remember reading it back in my old yeah. Calvinist head <laughs> uh, and everything else. So maybe it's not such a reliable guide. Um, so just because I guess just to, Earlier we talked about you didn't bring ethics into it, but in that last part, you've now started talking about sin. So I guess, and I guess you were turning that in on yourself, which I think is, is different because I guess that's where for me that once again, that's a dividing line. It's a case of if you're going to risk something on your faith, so long as that risk is on you and not on others, it's your risk. Uh, on you go. I might say something out of concern for the other person, but you know, it's on you. That's that's a key thing. <laughs> but how how do you now understand that concept of sin? How how do you think about that? And how do you then view that for yourself, but also for others as well? Yeah. Yeah. Um so um i mean let, let me just spitball and I'll, I'll just sort of say what's on the top of my mind and it might not be particularly well formulated but um i, I guess increasing I, and i think this is right 
I, I think this is the way it should be seen. But I'll tell you that the way I, I've ended up seeing sin now um, is that um, sin sin is a relative term. So sin, you know, literally meaning missing the mark, missing the mark in archery, whether you miss by, you know, you've, you've heard all this, you know, whether you miss by an inch, a mile or fire in the opposite direction, it's all sin. Um, but but it's the mark that's the absolute. I, and I guess for me, the, um, the the absolute is the love of God, is how loving am I? How much do I love God? And how much is that love expressed in the world through me? And how much do I bring that to others? Um, and sin are, are all the kind of the habits, the tendencies, the distractions, the you know the other agendas I have that just get in the way of of being that way. Um, so from my point of view, you know the, the the sin I'm most certain about is my own sin. Really, that's that's the one I'm most familiar with, um, not anybody else's. Um, but also, I I kind of what that means with regard to others is it means that. Um, I guess one way of putting it might be to say so, so this this becomes really important for me as a psychologist because one of the things as a psychologist you have is you have thousands of really really good ways to judge people you know lots of labels and different ways of sort of pointing out why people are wrong or what went on in their childhood or things like that and i guess i very very early on came to the conclusion that judgment without love was sin you know that to look at other people without a loving appreciation and, and kindness and compassion and an attempt to understand was that that was effectively what sin was re with regard to other people that's where it begins it begins at that kind of perceptual level um and, and straight away you can as i'm saying that you you immediately know you know i i don't succeed in um viewing people in that way but what it would mean say and this is crucial to sort of when belief dies it means when i look at you or when i look at sam i'm not really thinking about what's wrong with you or what's the problem or where have you gone wrong uh you know that can always be part of the discussion if we want to but the primary thing is sort of a desire to understand and view you from the best possible light and view you as really really important representatives of a journey that lots and lots of but maybe even the majority of sort of young adults our age are now taking um uh, and therefore not to make that wrong and to go there's actually something really important that you're holding that i need to make contact with and understand and i can only so i guess i carry the i carry the assumption both for you and for sam really um that that if i if i can if i can get you to explain it well enough to me it does make sense that there's something behind this that fundamentally makes sense and isn't evil you know isn't wrong that there's some really really good beautiful ethical reasons why you found yourself in the positions that you're in um and therefore what that means it's not necessarily to say that you guys aren't just as sinful as i am in some way but it's the idea that 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 isn't what's standing between you and i when we're talking what what i'm most interested in is why do you think what you think i i'm thinking of the irony of this given that the fact that i've spoken most in this show so far I'm kind of feel like i would have liked to have heard more from you but never mind that's kind of that, that's how i'm trying to sort of view um it, sam particularly and you as well which is like i just really understand need to understand where you guys are coming from and how you've ended up where you've ended up um and if i push you at all it's when i'm when i don't understand i just don't get how this led to that you know that's where the that's where the tension is that's where all the sort of the argy bargy between me, me and sam lies is when i just don't understand how he got to where he got to on certain things
Okay, so in a parallel universe where rather than leaving faith, I just went, okay, sort this evangelical stuff and going back to just full Eastern Orthodoxy. Do you think the Daniel in that universe is less sinful, more moral or more spiritual than me sat here having this conversation with you? Ah, such a good question. Um, so firstly, let's be clear that that, that universe doesn't exist. So, so, so weirdly, this is the same thing that goes on in imposter syndrome, isn't it? When you have imposter syndrome in a situation, it's not just that you have self doubt about what you can do. It's that you really believe there's some other you somewhere who could have done this much better than the way the current you is doing. Um, and so, so I, I think it's an unanswerable question. What the question you're asking. I think the question that is more answerable is, and this is how to deal with imposter syndrome as well, by the way, is that the only question you can ask is what, you know, if, if I'm feeling like an imposter in this situation, what do I need to learn? Who do I need to become in future so that I no longer feel like this? I grow into what I need to be. And so I guess what I would hold is I, I, I'd kind of really hold the, the view that you probably are exactly where you need to be right now, given the journey that you've been on. And that um, I hold this view, I'd hold it for Sam as well, that um, if if you, I, I wouldn't want you to embrace Christianity again, if you still thought it wasn't ethical and wasn't beautiful and wasn't true. Like, I have no desire for you to violate those things. But I guess what I do have is I have a hope that there is a version of Christianity that might be a, just a slight, reconstruction a reformulation of perhaps what you previously believed that you may eventually be led back to which is more beautiful more true and more ethical than what you previously experienced i guess that's that 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 would be my view and and i guess i would hold the view that that your life might be a little bit better you know if if that if that is the way things developed um but at the same time i'd also say i don't need that from you Okay, but that was an interesting answer <laughs> because, um, <clears throat> yeah, I guess for me that's, and I think for a lot of people on this journey is what I, you know, what we hear from most Christians is <clears throat> this strong them and us divide that then, <clears throat> you know, even the choice of leaving you know, oh, you're actually doing that because you want to sit uh, has been such a, a, a constant repeating narrative. And especially when part of my reasons for leaving was I couldn't make the, the strong ethical claims that I was making um, anymore. I, I just didn't feel comfortable. It was both that balance of, is this true? probability reducing and what is the consequences of getting this wrong growing and growing both at the same time that really flipped me over and i yeah so part of me wants to go okay you're you're not that position uh but there's still yeah there's still a line here that or, or perhaps another question um could I could I just say say some other area where I think this is really important is because th this is the question that comes up in sort of um, sexual identity really so it's like some of my 
sort of best friends, colleagues, supporters at work um, would would sort of belong to the LGBTQ community in, in various different ways. Um, and some of them are former Christians, you know, so some of them, you know, were brought up as Christians, you know, some of them even have parents who don't speak to them any longer because of their, their sort of sexual identity. Um, and um, and so I, I, I've sometimes sat with the question you just asked me about you with them, you know, am I really saying that if they suddenly stop being, let's say, lesbian um, in a really functional happy relationship that seems to do a load of good in the world uh, and brings lots of life and they're a great support to me and i'm happy to go and stay in the house you know and you know all, all those kind of things am i really saying that if if that all broke up and they found some bloke somewhere that they fancied and got together with them everything would be better um i just find that unimaginable i, I just like i honestly cannot say they would be in it. Well, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be. I think I, in fact, I almost, this feels like it goes against everything I might believe to say, I feel like the world would be a worse place if that happened to them. Um, so I don't quite know what to do with that, but that's definitely the strong gut feeling I have about that situation. Yeah, absolutely. I forgot the point I was making earlier before. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, sorry, no, no yeah. it's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine. But yeah, I guess, uh, oh yes, the other question I was going to ask because, like, I I, I said uh, recently um, when uh, one of the questions was um, if if you could choose a religion to be true, which one would it be? Um, and the, it, what I actually chose was Sikhism, um, which. And I guess some of the reasons was, well, one, if I was going to be convinced that there is a God, then actually I think Sikhism doesn't attach so much as, as Christianity does. And in particular, Sikhism sort of, one of the teachings they have is that there are many ways to access this God. And there is a tradition, there is, tools and techniques that Sikhism employs to be a Sikh, um, including, you know, helping those who are in need. And so many of these, as you described it, ethical and beautiful things, even if even if that question of truth is put on the shelf for one moment, uh, that, you know, I find quite attractive. So I guess, once again, do you, do you think that if I was to become a Sikh, as opposed to where I'm at as an atheist, that I would be a more ethical or a, 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 would you imagine that as a better world than the one that we're currently in? I'm aware you only know me so well. This is our first conversation. <laughs> so that's, that's quite a big question, yeah. <laughs> but obviously sometimes yeah. people just think, oh, our are religious people better than non-religious people yeah, got you. and just yeah. compare their examples rather than no, I want yeah. to understand on an individual basis. Now, this, so so on on this issue, I, I just don't know enough about Sikhism to be able to answer the question. So so can I change the religion a little bit? So let, let's say you became an absolute dyed-in-the-wool Taoist. I, I, I think you probably would be a heck of a lot better than you are now. I, th I think you'd be much cooler and um, be much more chilled out in all kinds of situations. Um, you'd have loads of really cool sayings. You'd probably have a better beard. You know, there'll be loads of stuff going on, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, you know, there are in the same way that I see people who really sort of become truly compassionate 
buddhists you know not just people who are just playing at it but people who really sort of do that inner work of self-compassion and compassion to others um i just have no doubt that they're better people as a result of sort of going through that practices but but here's the issue so I, and i think it does land on the issue for me is it's not really the labels that count it's what you practice that is the thing and so i guess even though kind of we can set it up as christian or non-christian seek whatever i think that's why I come back to it sort of following Jesus, really, that is the thing that makes the difference to me. It's not so much the label of being Christian. It's the the day by day sort of attentiveness and practice of loving, being loved uh, and attempting to love, expressing love. I think that's the thing that really makes a difference. And for me, that sits within that entire sort of community tradition and history. Yeah, well, I feel like I've been asking you all the, the, the questions, but I, I, it's really interesting. And you, you kind of give me some really, um, yeah, yeah, really good reflections in what you say. I think I, I kind of understand where you're at now, because it's always my worry that, and I think I said this to you in the, in the little email exchange we had before this, is that some people who, especially I see it within Christianity, can point to the more conservative side of them and they go, well, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I'm something, I'm something different. And actually I know for myself, a lot of the language that I use to describe my beliefs, to describe my theology, were not, were not for the other person, but for myself to euphemize some of the things which I would now turn and go, no, that, that was, that was damaging. That wasn't, that isn't what I agree with. And I was using the softening, dampening language to, to try and release myself from the, the harder content of that belief. And so I'm just trying to find where, whereabouts are you? Is it that you're euphemizing your beliefs for this conversation or, or is it actually, no, you are, you are embracing of this more open understanding yeah. of God? I, and and the reality is, I, I mean, I might be euphemized. I can't, you know. I'm sure if if you probed far enough, you'd find that somewhere because I think that that's sort of inevitable. Um, um, it, but I'm also aware, like one of the queries I've had, and me and Sam have also discussed this, is I've wondered if I have played that rhetorical card a bit too much. The kind of I'm not like those other Christians kind of card. Um, and I I wonder how accurate that is at times, actually. Um, because you know i belong to effectively a charismatic evangelical church i'm actually quite happy there i very much like the people um in the church i'm very very much an insider um but but i guess if we go back to the analogy i started with i'm always the guy who's enjoyed chatting over the garden fence with people who are different and i think that's what this is really you know I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, to leave any comments or thoughts, please head on over to YouTube. And to follow us on social media or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. And I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.